Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Damascus Road Church. Our current series is Jesus Over All, a look inside the call for the glory of God to be our aim in all of life. We're going to continue our series, Jesus Over All, our worship series. Today we're going to talk about marriage, which is why probably a lot of our couples are not here today. They're like, oh no, I'm not doing that. I'm not listening to that. Uh, so let's pray. And uh, ask the Holy Spirit to prepare us for what he wants to say to us. God, we love you today. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for Jesus who does for us what must be done and what we can't do. And God, if there's any category that kind of represents uh, us struggling to do what must be done, it's probably marriage. Um, a lot of us are married and have had tough seasons and good seasons. And, and a lot of us, uh, you know, maybe... Are married, were married and aren't, or are hoping to be married. Everybody in this room has some kind of exposure and some kind of relationship to marriage. And so we know, God, that you have things to say about that. And we know that there's probably some struggle and some pain and some hurt around this. So I, I pray for protection from two things today. First, God, I pray that you would keep us from being defensive, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate around and through those things, God, that will keep us from hearing your spirit that will keep us from listening, that will keep us from being humble. And I also want to pray for protection, God, against condemnation. I want to pray for protection for those who are who are really struggling and who are really hurting right now, hearing this as though you're angry with them or as though they should be ashamed. I pray, God, the gospel will penetrate both the condemned and the defensive. And then when we walk out of here today, we'll have a renewed belief in your ability to redeem and we'll be hopeful, and we'll be grateful, and we'll be worshipful in the context of our marriages. We pray, God, that you'll accomplish that for, our, for your glory and for the good and joy of your people. And we'll thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So anytime you talk about marriage, there is a lot of people in the room who, man, it's, it's a softball toss right down the middle of the plate of where they are and what's going on with them. And then there's other people in the room who are like, this doesn't, this doesn't apply to me right now. And, and I feel a little disconnected or, or disjointed. So I want to, I want to address three groups of people before we even get into that. That's single folk, divorced folk, and folks who are in marriages right now that are abusive or, um, or, or damaging or, or whatever word you want to put on that. The first is this. Let's, let's talk to single folk in here. Um, all married folk were previously single before they got married. Can I say that? I mean, we can all agree on that, right? Like, before you got married, you were single. And whatever you did and whatever you believed and whatever you worshipped, you took into that marriage. And it affected your marriage and the health of it and the dynamics of it and all of those kinds of things. So if you're single in here and you say, oh, thank goodness, I can, uh, you know, check my email and, and get on Twitter and Facebook and all that while he's talking, I would caution you to realize that 90% of you, 90% of you will one day have a husband or a wife. And you will still be probably in the same vicinity of the same person that you are now. And so this is a great opportunity for you to have some preparatory thought and prayer and examination so that when you do get married and God does bless you with a spouse, you can enter into that covenant as healthy and as humble and as as gospel-centered as you possibly can. Second group is anyone in here who is divorced. And let me let me make clear. Uh, I know we have a lot of folks who are divorced. And 
I don't know the circumstances of your divorce. I wasn't there. Uh, uh, I, I wasn't a part of that. And I'll be candid with you. I don't know if I would have agreed with you getting divorced or not. So I don't, I don't want to lie to you and say, hey, I'm sure I would have agreed it's good. I don't know whether I would have or not. But here's what I do know. Uh, I do know that God does not deal in the currency of guilt. Amen? Yeah. And for whatever reason, the church has, has forgotten that in certain segments of our congregation. And we're perfectly comfortable with shaming people who have had a marriage that has failed. And, and, and I've never talked to anyone who says, I had a good divorce, right? God says, I hate marriage. And I think that humanity says, we do too. And so I'm not going to be directly talking to you, but I do want you to know this. God does not deal in the currency of guilt. And so if you're receiving that, that's not from him. Number two, I'm not going to be talking about the past. We're going to be talking about today and moving forward. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that all God calls us to do today, not yesterday, today, is turn to him. And he says that the future can be different. And so... If you're in here today and you have things in the past that, that continue to hang on to you and continue to hurt you and shame you and all those kind of things, I want you to know that, that redemption is near and possible through Jesus. And that if you hear nothing else from me today, I want you to know that you're welcome at Damascus Road. We love you. And we believe that Jesus is the answer to whatever happened and whatever is going to happen. All right. Number three, if you're in here today and you are married and you're in an abusive relationship, I want you to understand that the things that I'm talking about are not to make that that uh, that individual free to continue to abuse. And I don't want you to hear that God is most glorified in you when you stay in an abusive relationship. Uh, I do not believe that God calls and, and, and generally it's women to stay in an abusive relationship and just shut their mouth and stay and take it because that's what God wants. And so if you're in here today and you're in an abusive relationship I want you to hear as clearly as I can that we are for you and that we want to walk with you. And if that means some kind of protective element, we want to be a part of that. And and, and I don't want you to hear, hey, God just wants you to stay and take it uh, because I, I don't see that in Scripture. Uh, if you're in here today, and I want to I want to say this as firmly and as as graciously as I can. If you are an abuser, do not hear any license from me and what I'm about to say. Do not hear any. See, Tim says, I only want you to hear one word if you are an abuser, and that is you need to repent today, not tomorrow, today, right now, knock it off, repent, deeply apologize, get into community and knock off abusing a daughter of God. Amen. All right. So. Last week, we kind of set up this grid for worship. We set up this idea that God created all of us worshiping. We, ha- we are all worshiping something. We are all valuing something. We are all seeking purpose in something. We're not just worshipers, we're worshiping. And we're equally created interpreting. So we have something that we highly value. And then God built us with five senses with the ability to experience, with tradition, with intuition, with reason. We're receiving information. And out of that thing that we value and that interpretation that we make, we develop certain beliefs and certain behaviors. So worshiping, interpreting, beliefs and behaviors. That's our equation. Worshiping plus interpreting equals certain beliefs and certain behaviors. So when we come to marriage, we're going to plug that equation in. But let me 
first kind of set this thing up. I have been in vocational ministry, and I say vocational because everybody in this room who's a follower of Jesus is to be in ministry, right? You are to be discipling. You are to be a missionary. You are to be uh, pointing people to Jesus. I have been a pastor since I was 22. I am 35 now, and that means that I have been doing this for almost 14 years. And during that time period, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of premarital counseling. The very first time that I did premarital counseling, I'm not an easily intimidated dude, but it's an intimidating thing when two people walk in and say, tell us how to be married well. And I say, are, are you talking to me? Right. Um, and, and and I've had the opportunity to do dozens and dozens of these and, and marry lots of folks. And it's, it's one of my favorite things. And. I've noticed as we've gone along that that there's patterns that come out in every single couple, that all couples are really in the same general categories, different name and different face, but very similar experiences. So I want to uh, give you a couple examples of those. And here's how I want you to think about this. Just starting out is I want you to see the grace of God and the attraction of opposites. You guys have heard that opposites attract. I think that that's a God given God-glorifying, grace-of-God kind of thing. So let me give you some examples. I've noticed this. That in arguments, there's always, always an attacker and a withdrawer. In other words, one of the people is like, no, we're going to talk about this right now. And we're going to... And the other person is like, no, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to talk about it. Every time. I, I have never run into a couple that there wasn't a distinct... <laughs> and there wasn't a, I'm going to go into my room, I'm going to close the door, we're not going to talk about this. Secondly, there's a spender and a saver. Yeah. And, and there's, we're going to be financially, fiscally responsible, we're going to save 75%, we're going to give the other 25%, I don't know how we're going to pay our bills, but we don't need to, you know, necessarily to worry about that. And then there's the one who they walk through the mall and they're like, oh, we, we need, oh, 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 right? Every time, every single time. There's the responsible one, and then there's the busy one. And I've noticed that busy is our new word for irresponsible. You, you know what I'm talking about? That you've got the responsible one, that everything needs to be in order, and you've got the one, I mean, I'm just busy, which means that they don't ever do what they're gonna, they say they're going to do. They're always late. They're, I'm just so busy. I don't know. Uh, there's a talker and a thinker. We need to talk. We need to connect. No. I need, I need to think. I need to, I need to process. There's an idealist and there's a realist, which means they're a pessimist. Everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be wonderful. Everything, where this is, I'm basically, this is Snow White and, and you're the prince and, and it's whatever. And no, I, I, we're just going to try to, every, every single time. There's a spiritual person and there's a not as spiritual. And unfortunately, men, I've noticed that the spiritual one is generally a female. A lot of times the gal comes in and they say, man, I want our relationship to be centered around Jesus. And they talk and they talk and they talk. You, you know, which one is generally the talker? Um, and they're idealistic. And, and they're talking about how they're going to, we're going to pray together. And we're going to go to church together. And we're going to be in communion group together. And it's going to be wonderful. And they talk and talk. And, and there's this vacuum of energy on the other side of the table, right? And so I turn to him and I say, what do you think about that? Yeah. 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 Like you want all that? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you guess. Yeah. 
Don't say yeah again. All right. Answer that. Right. <laughs> there's almost always there's a little bit of inequality in terms of what we desire in the spirit. There's generally a proactive and a passive. And again, I've noticed that a lot of times the proactive is the gal. And a lot of times the passive is the guy, just like in that spiritual thing. Yeah, what she said, that's passive. There's generally somebody who is easily guilted, who, who easily feels shame, who easily feels, in church we call it conviction, even though they're not the same. And there's generally someone who doesn't. They, they, they're dismissive. If they're feeling guilty about it, they say, you know, whatever, I'm not going to think about that. There's generally a desire for connection and a desire for peace. Now, which do you think? Who's the peace? All right, look, married folk, if you don't know the answer to this, you need to set up an appointment right now. (laughs) Yeah, generally the female is wanting the connection. So let's talk and let's experience and let's let's think and let's pray. and And the guy just wants peace. Can I give you an example? Pause. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, that's the the opposites. Generally a desire for love. I just want you to love me. I just want and a desire for respect. You sit across from a guy and you say, You can either be deeply loved or deeply respected. And the guy will be like, Is this a trick question? I want to be respected. I want to be respected. And so so this opposite kind of thing from the very onset. And I've also noticed that more and more Couples come in and they have never had a mentor. They've never been discipled and they don't have any vision for their relationship. They don't have any vision for their relationship. So I I say all of those things, first of all, to just let you know that you're normal, that you're normal. I I mean, if literally if if you have done premarital counseling with me in this in this church, you know that I say I don't say is one of you. A spender and one of you a saver, I say, which one of you is the spender? I say, which one of you is passive? Which one of you is proactive? Which one of you? But we walk around a lot of times in our marriage and we think that that we are especially uniquely dysfunctional or healthy. And and you're not. You're normal. And, And this happens with everyone. And I would say even this. The reason that it's the grace of God, let's think through back in the garden. God comes to Adam and he gives him a commission to fill the earth and subdue it, to take dominion over it. And then what does he say that he needs? That he needs a partner, that he needs a help me. And that partner, that help me is not like him in any way, shape or form. In fact, she is almost the exact opposite of him. Now, pre-fall, that was a good thing and seen as Eve provided Adam with the things that he needed to be able to fulfill the commission that God had given him. Now we call that reason for argument. Now, now that we're, we're, we're bent toward contentiousness. But in Jesus, that opposite attracting the reason that you fell in love with that person is God providing you with the things that you need to do what he's called you to do that you can't do on your own. And so we need to start there with your normal We need to start there with your wife or your husband who's not like you. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. This is simple math. If I already have all the things that I need in you, I don't need more of that. In other words, if I got you, why do I need another you? I need somebody who comes alongside you and compliments you, 
somebody who comes alongside of you and holistically fills out your gifts and your calling. Let me give you a, a real quick example. I am generally big picture. I'm generally uh, around communication and decision making and, and here we go and direction and da, da 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 My wife is remarkably hospitable. Remarkably hospitable. One of the most hospitable women that I have ever come across. If you come over to my house, whatever good experience you have is going to come directly from that woman. Because her, my version of hospitality is, do you want something to drink? Yeah, I would. There's the fridge. Right? There's the fridge. And, and, and I, I'll say it kindly, and I mean it. You can, you can get whatever you want out of it. I, my wife, however, is going to lay out a plethora of drink options with a nice flower arrangement in between. She's going to pour, how many cups, how much ice would you like? That's my wife. Now, if you come to my house and you sit down and I say, all right, let's make decisions. Here we go. Yo. If you're not bad like that, you're going to come to my house and you're going to be like, you need to take a break. But my wife, you come to my house and my wife's going to create a, a, a great home and a great atmosphere and a great experience. And you're going to feel affirmed and cared for and loved in a way that you for sure are not if you come and I'm the only one that's home. Why did God give me somebody who's completely opposite in that way? So that I could be a blessing in a way that I'm not able to produce for those that are part of my life. So when I invite you to my house, I'm going to try to help my wife. But I know that if I let her do her thing, you're going to have a much better experience at the Dunn house than if I do my thing. God provides us with opposites by his grace and for his glory. And that's something to be celebrated, not argued about. So we go to this grid that God has set up for us, this worshiping, interpreting, behaving and believing and here's something that's going to be really, really helpful for you. I remember when I was sitting in, in a room with, with a couple and this, the light bulbs came on for me in this. And it's this, that, that when two people fall in love, they meet one another, they fall in love, they decide to spend their lives together. He generally purchases a very small rock because that's what he can afford. And he got, has an elaborate kind of setup and he gets down on one knee and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And we do movies around and all that kind of thing. Um, those folks, when they get married, they are two people who are worshiping. And often, not the same thing. So, worshiping individuals fall in love. Worshiping individuals decide to spend their lives together. Worshiping individuals agree to go into covenant with one another. And worshiping individuals bring different things that they're worshiping into the relationship and say, we're not going to talk about this. We're sure it will go well. And generally what happens is during the dating process, we don't think about this and we don't talk about this because everything's wonderful. So why rock the boat? Lot dating is, is, is the, the slickest, most acceptable form of lying that our culture has. Because you are cleaner than you've ever been. You are more put together. You uh, smell better. You go to nicer places. You have a plan, hopefully. You pay for dinner. You hold hands. You, you know, do whatever you... You are the very best version of yourself when you're dating. Which means this. That you also are smart enough to not say the things that you're worshipping that you shouldn't be. You're smart enough to not say, that really gets on my nerves. Will you knock it off? Because you want another date. 
And so what happens is we we act as though we're not worshiping during the dating process or we act as though we're worshiping that person, which makes them feel loved or makes them feel respected. And then we get married and about six months into it, we've had our 879th argument and we say something like this. You lied to me. No, I didn't lie to you. Not any more than you lied to them. But. Two people get married and they are worshiping, which means that they have a value system. They have something that they believe provides them with purpose. They believe that there are things that are more important than others. And they get married and we try to make this thing work. Now, if you're sitting in here today and you're like, I've never been to church. and You're talking about this worship thing thing. I'm not religious. I don't worshiping as a person is not a religious idea. It's a human idea. That we would say that God built you with a desire for the transcendent. That God built you wanting purpose. God built you wanting value. We said last week, this is why we're so prone to be easily marketed to. That we want the the big, the beautiful, the transcendent, the connection, the, the success, all of those kinds of things. So don't get tripped up on the verbiage here. Everybody is built worshiping and we get married. Now... When you get married, here's the language that we have on this. What we talk about when we're talking about worshiping is our expectations. Our expectations. If you're taking notes, you should write that down. And here's the thing that I found out. Whenever I sit down across from couples, I will say to them, so give me your expectations for this relationship. And after about a 30-second silent period, the woman says something like this. Well, I hope that he'll love me and not cheat on me and... Provide, and if she's a Christian, she'll say and spiritually lead. And oh, I say, okay, you know, that's, that's all wonderful. What do you want him to do with the toilet seat? What? What do you want him to do with the toilet seat? Well, I don't know. I don't care about that. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. And if you don't today, you will tomorrow. I got two boys. I've seen what a boy can do to a toilet seat. It ain't pretty expectations. And I'll say to the guy, and and it's amazing. Generally, I I say to the guy, all right, what are your expectations? (laughs) And I'll be like, I don't know. I got a very small, very small, you know, patience level with with, uh, with, with that. What do you mean you don't know? What What do you want for a relationship outside of that she has lots of sex with you? Oh, yeah, I do want that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, genius. No kidding. Oh, yeah, I do want that. Okay, well, what do you want her to have have meals ready when you get home? Do you want her to let you watch the game? Do you want we have and and we don't think about it. We don't talk about it unless and this is why if you're going to get married at Damascus Road, we require that you do premarital counseling because we know that you are a worshiper who is worshiping and that that worshiping comes out in expectations that unless somebody says, what are your expectations? We don't talk about it because we don't think of ourselves as worshiping. And so here's how this generally works. Uh, Our expectations oftentimes come from our family of origin. They come from our family of origin, how you grew up. And And it happens one of two ways. 
You have a house that you grew up in where oftentimes dad was around and mom was around and they had a generally healthy relationship and there was good communication and there was reasonably good relationship between siblings and there was there was difficult times, but we got through them together and all those kinds of things. And you get married and your expectation is that by sheer osmosis, that's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Your expectation is we're going to have dinner together. He's going to pay the bills on time. He's going to work hard so that that he has the money to pay the bills. She's going to cook dinner. She's going to clean the house. And you can say, that's so traditional. Hey, get over it. I don't know what to tell you. That's still what our expectation is many times. And when it doesn't happen, we have debates. So we're not allowed to talk about arguments in church. Yeah. So family of origin If you come from healthy, you generally have an expectation that it's just going to happen to be healthy anyways. And and, and that's how it's going to work. And and a lot of times one person will come from a family that's not healthy and one person will come from a family that is healthy. And this person is in for the shock of their life. (laughs) The other expectation is if you come from dysfunction and mom and dad aren't together or they are together and you wish that they weren't. And they argue all the time and and, and dad is passive and lazy and and the bills are never done. You're always struggling and mom's stressed out and mom's anxious. I know this is completely hypothetical, right? I see this more and more and more people getting into marriage with dysfunction. And here is their expectation. I just don't want more of that. So you either have I want more health and I just assume it's going to work that way. Or you have, my family was crazy and painful, and I just don't want more of that. And here is the problem with that as an expectation, is that that expectation is in an unspoken way inferred into the relationship without the skill to make either come to pass. And so the standard for, the, for, for this gal or for this guy, it isn't Jesus. It's, I just don't want to be like dad. Or I just don't want to be like mom. But... You don't know why she was that way. You don't know what she valued that made her that way. You just know that you don't want to be like that. On this side, you don't know the sacrifices that were made, the the responsibilities that were held, the, the stewardship that occurred to bring that health together. And so what will happen is you'll get into an argument and this guy will say, you're just like my mom. The one thing I couldn't have. And she'll say, you're nothing like my dad. See how that happens? Now, what has happened? The dysfunction and the lack of it becomes something that I'm worshiping. It's the highest value. I just don't want more of that. And if I can, anything I can do to keep it from that, I'll do anything to do it. Except that you don't seem to be on the same team with me. Here, family dynamics and family health becomes the thing that I'm worshiping. And when he doesn't help out with that, the thing that manifests that thing that we're worshiping, that expectation, generally the dad, if he's a good one, becomes the standard by which the man in the relationship has to attain or isn't attaining to. So you have this family of origin thing, which is why whenever we do premarital counseling, we spend a lot of time talking about your family and where you grew up and what its values were and what its traditions were and what its systems and rhythms and all of those kinds of things were. Why? Because they develop expectations and expectations that are not thought about well become points of worship for us. The three other categories that we tend to have expectations are the three categories where there's the most idolatry in our culture, power, money and sex. 
If I were to take every single problem that I've ever heard or that I've ever had in my marriage, I don't want to give you the impression that Ash and I have have been. We just read our Bible and we fast all the time and we don't know. That's not true. But every single argument that I have ever had or that I have ever observed or that I've ever heard of falls into one of four categories. Power, money, sex or family of origin. Who's right? That's power. Did the bills get paid? Do I get to buy this? Are we saving? Are we spending? That's money. And sex, well, you can fill in the blanks on that. And couples come in and they are, they are, they are power grabbing according to an expectation that is or isn't being met. They are freaked out and arguing about money because of an expectation that is or isn't being met. And their sex life, the most intimate thing that they have, is according to an expectation that is or isn't being met. And we call expectation because that's more benign than worshiping. It's more benign than worshiping. But understand that any time that I take something and I make it more important than God or I make it more important than my spouse, I'm worshiping. I'm worshiping. I'm placing a value that transcends my Savior or my spouse. And when I do that, something is going to get broken. And if I do that long enough, multiple things are going to get broken. And so this idea of worshiping as expectation then leads to an interpretation. Whether or not the thing that should be happening is happening or shouldn't be happening isn't happening. And what ends up occurring is that people come come into marriage with an expectation, an unspoken expectation. They're looking through the pinhole of that expectation at their relationship, and they are interpreting the worth, the value, the health, the success, the happiness of their marriage based on that expectation. Now, this is a completely, this is, this is a human quality. This happens naturally. This happens to everybody. It happens to everybody. But let me tell you the danger of this. When we're making these interpretations, the thing that becomes the foundation of our marriage, listen, is our idols. The thing that becomes the foundation of our marriage is our idols. In other words, when somebody comes in and they say, he isn't XYZ and he isn't not enough like my dad or enough like my dad, they are making dad or whatever dad represented an idol by which their relationship is being evaluated, which means that they are trying to build on something that is not God. We always think about making God as our foundation as being we go to church together, we give, we're in a community group. Sometimes we read our Bible together and we pray together before we go to bed. That is not God as foundation. It's an aspect or a manifestation of God as foundation, but God as primary recipient of worship is what we're talking about. And us getting into our relationships and identifying the things that we have transplanted God as foundational for at the, at, because of the expectations that we've had and the values that we pursue that we do not share and that are not Jesus. Is that making sense to you? And so you come into marriage and you don't realize that you're worshiping and you don't realize that you have expectations. And a hundred times out of a hundred, your marriage is going to be at its foundation faulty because idols are always going to fail you. Always, always going to fail you. And that's why 
candidly, if you're in here today and you're about to marry somebody who isn't a follower of Jesus, I would as as vehemently as I could possibly say, do not do it. Not because, well, the Bible says blah, 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 although it does. Because you are expecting health out of two foundations that are not the same. God doesn't say, don't be unequally yoked because he's a killjoy and because he doesn't know how cute she is. He says it because he understands good construction. And he understands that if you are not worshiping the same thing, eventually the house is going to topple. Or you're going to try to fill it with things to supplement its toppling. But God says, when you get married, get married in the understanding of what that you are worshiping, identify what you are worshiping, and build on worshiping Jesus. And when you do that, your marriage will be for God's glory and for your joy. But I run into hundreds of people who think that a different blueprint will produce them the same result. And can I tell you guys, I have never seen it work. Never. Not once. Because God is is not just true, he is truth. And because God is the architect of marriage, it was his idea. He was the one that came up with it. He was the one that came up with the design. He was the one that said this is the best way to do it. And so as Christians, we place our faith in his perspective. We submit ourselves to him in worshiping him and identifying our idols so that our house can be built in a healthy and straight way. So when we think about this idea of worshiping and interpreting, there's some behaviors and some beliefs that we need to talk through here. And I'm going to try to give you just some general biblical beliefs and practices that I think are good rails for your marriage. That I think that if you kind of flesh these out and allow the trajectory of these to be invested into your relationship, I think that you'll either be on a good start toward redemption or a good start toward a healthy marriage. Because some of you are in here today and and your marriage is already struggling. And so our aim in this is not to condemn. Our aim in this is redemption. And some of you, you've been married six months and you've got your marriage ahead of you. And, and, and you have you don't have wings of the house that need to be ripped down for health to be built in. And so these are some practices that I would say are profoundly biblical that I would ask you to think on and pray on as a couple that I would ask you to get into community group and talk out if you're not in a community group on stuff like this. Man, you need to be you need to be. So when we're talking about our beliefs in marriage, our marriage confession, as it were. Three things that I want you to notice. The first is this, that our standard is not what. Our standard in marriage is not what. In, in other words, this isn't, this isn't the rules or the, the ideas. This is that our standard is not what, it's who. It's who. And I want you to, if you have a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read through. Is the, are the slides off? No? Can you put that one up there, Keith? Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 31 through 32, and then through 5 and verse 2, and then we're going to get into kind of this this really well-known marriage standard. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That, for some of you, just described your marriage. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What's the standard in that verse? As God in Christ forgave you. The standard is a person. It's not some benign rule on a piece of paper. It's not, well, the Bible says it. No, our standard is a person and how he treats us and how he empowers us to exemplify him. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's a great marriage verse. It's a great marriage verse. Now. This is the context for Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is writing the church of Ephesus. He makes this thesis statement at the beginning of the chapter. And then 20 verses into it, he goes into a very relevant topic for us. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ. There's our standard. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love their wives. What's the next word? As. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Next verse. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Here's the first thing you need to understand. Is that our standard isn't a rule. It's a person. And God is not commanding us according to a rule. He is empowering us according to a person. In other words, men, if I say to you, love your wives as Christ loved the church, your proper response would should be, have you lost your mind? I can't do that. You're right. Because the standard isn't a rule, the standard is a person, and it's a person who interacts with you and empowers you to exemplify him. To exemplify him. And so our belief in marriage, our confession in marriage, isn't, i got to follow the rules so God won't be mad. That's a horrible confession. It isn't, i got to follow the rules so I'll be happy. It's, God empowers me. To exemplify his son for his glory. But the standard is Jesus. The standard is Jesus. Number two, who is marriage for? Our standard is a person. Who is marriage for? Now the general question that we get, or the answer that we get, is it's for who? It's for me. It's for my spouse. It's for my kids. It's for my... Community. But I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for what? For my glory, whom I formed and who I made. The two individuals that are put into a marriage are created not for one another and not for themselves, but for the glory of God. Look at Romans chapter 11. For from him, this being God, and through him and to him are, how many things? Are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen means let it be so. Let it be so. Let my marriage be 
for the glory of God. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? And for him. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. Here's what you need to understand, guys. I don't think that if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you're going, to get, you're going to give me much pushback on Jesus as standard. But this is what we generally don't think about. We think about that my marriage is not for me. It's not for me. God didn't let me get married primarily for me. He provided a wife for me primarily for him. For his glory. For, for his fame, for the exalting of his name. So the aim of marriage is the glory of God. The aim of marriage is not connection. The aim of marriage is not respect. The aim of marriage is not we can accumulate more wealth together than apart. The aim of marriage is not procreation. The aim of marriage is not lots of sex. The aim of marriage is none of those things. A lot of those things happen under the glory of God, but the primary Aim of marriage is the glory of God. From him it came and for him it exists. You should brand that into your mind. This marriage exists for God. And then out of it, this is a very important one. God's aim then is not my happiness. Now we live in, in, in a culture where there's this idea that God wants my self-esteem to be high and my happiness to be full. And I'm not saying that God wants you to be miserable, right? We, we generally think that if God doesn't want me to be happy, then he wants me to be miserable. Those are the only two options. Here's what God says. God says that when something is for his glory, it's also for the joy of his creation. That God pursues his glory... And the joy of all people with the same vehemence. So here's what I need you to understand. God says Jesus is the standard of marriage. God says marriage is for his glory. And God says that marriage is not for your happiness, but it is for your joy. Now, this is why this is so important. Because when we talk about happiness, we talk about happiness admittedly in a circumstantial way. I'm happy that this happened. I'm happy that the sun's out. I'm happy that this shirt was clean today. I'm happy that my kids are behaving. Please, God, let it be in the kids' room. I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. Happy and joy are not the same thing, are they? Not even close. And a lot of times couples get into a relationship with the expectation that if I get married, I will be more happy married than I was happy single. And then what happens? They are sorely disappointed. And then rather than thinking to themselves that their expectation was improper, they think the marriage is improper. And that's where we come up with these definitions of we are getting divorced because of irreconcilable differences. (laughs) My irreconcilable difference is she doesn't make me happy and she was supposed to. And I try to talk to her about it and she won't listen because she's prideful. No, that's never been the aim of marriage. God says that marriage is by him and for him and that it is for his glory. And so that means that God is busy being at work in our relationship for the purpose of forming Jesus more fully in you through marriage. In other words, 
the, eight, the, the, the most drastic agent of change in your life if you married is probably your spouse. It's probably your spouse. And what that also means is that oftentimes, because God is seeking his glory, he will attract you to someone who is not only not like you, but is weak in the areas that you think they should be strong. Am I preaching in the choir right now? We have an expectation that our spouse is going to be very much like us, or at least like us in the areas that we think they should be strong. And then we find out that they're, that they're actually not only not strong in those areas, they're awful in those areas. And if our expectation is that marriage is for us and for our comfort and for our peace and for our connection and for our happiness, rather than marriage is the is the medium that God uses to transform our hearts to look more like Jesus so that he can be glorified and we can receive joy. We are starting off on the wrong foot. If you're in here today and your idol has been peace, you, you've been pursuing the wrong the wrong vehicle toward the wrong end. Because marriage isn't peaceful, is it? If you've been pursuing permanent happiness, you've been in the wrong vehicle toward the wrong place. But if you got married in the belief that God provided you with a spouse for his glory to form Jesus more fully in you, and that he will oftentimes use his or her weaknesses and struggles to make you more like Jesus then you probably got the idea of marriage. You probably got the idea of marriage. God is not interested in you living for whatever 20, 30, 40, 50 years in marriage being just happy. And in fact, I would say this, and this is going to sound crazy to you, that if you get married and all you ever are is happy, your marriage is a failure. Now, that's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? That's pretty counterintuitive. But I would also say if you get married and your marriage isn't always happy, but there's joy there and you look more like Jesus with each passing year, you get it. You get it. But what that means then is that lots of times arguments, this is what we talked about last week, don't dictate our, our, our values, that circumstances don't dictate our values, but they expose them. So when I have an argument with my wife, that one time that I told you about last week, what did it do? It exposed me. She didn't dictate me. She exposed me. The Holy Spirit exposes my idolatry through the medium of my beautiful wife so that I can repent of it, confess of it, and turn to Jesus. Yeah. So marriage then, with all of the 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 sandpapering, with all of the ah, I'm gonna kill her. Ah, I'm gonna kill him. I sound more like a woman than I did a man. I got a, a very alto voice. Yeah. What is that? It's exposing. It's exposing what I value more highly than my spouse or more highly than Jesus. And I would say this, guys, if you're arguing like cats and cats and dogs with your wife or with your husband, good. Because you're being given an opportunity to see what you really value. 
You're being given an opportunity to deeply confess and repent. If you're never arguing, I would say someone's lying. And we don't, we don't, we don't think about marriage this way. Now, I'm not saying go home and pick a fight with your wife. All right? Well, Tim says we're supposed to argue, so let's do this. I'm going to turn on the game. You start talking to me, okay? <laughs> it seems to work every time. Yeah. But I am saying this. If we understand what the foundation and the direction of marriage is supposed to be, when things pop up that expose our values, we're being given the opportunity to bring them to Jesus rather than to defend them. Rather than to say, no, I'm right and you're wrong. You always do this. You lied to me. This isn't what I got it signed up for. I'm not happy. I don't have peace. I don't have comfort. Are you bringing God glory? Is Jesus being more fully formed in your heart, in your life? Are your values being exposed so that you can repent of them? Then that's God's aim. Because God created you worshiping. And he wants you to worship him through your marriage. Couple practices, and then we'll be done. First thing is this. Are you all still with me? Yeah. All right. First thing is this. And, and let me do say this. Both your confessions and your practices in marriage have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're not going to muscle these things out. You're not going to discipline these things to pass. This is, this is you coming to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, you've got to accomplish these things in me. So these confessions and these practices, the first is this, and this is the umbrella under which marriage exists, is that marriage is, and you write this down, covenantal, not contractual. What that means is this, marriage is us entering into a covenant, not into a contract. See, so what's the difference? A contract is, I sit down with Jackie and we have an agreement, and if she doesn't hold up her end of the bargain, what happens to our contract? Yeah, she's in breach, and it's out. Now, why is it that, that lots of times, uh, in lots of places, and for lots of years, since the mid-70s, when no-fault divorce was introduced, do we have about half of marriages failing? Because what's being worshipped isn't identified, expectations and interpretations aren't identified, And because we still have all of these things, we enter into this contract in which our expectations are to be met and what we worship is supposed to be upheld. And if it's not, then that's not what it's supposed to do. So what's the point in continuing in it? And depending on how stubborn you are or how persistent you are, you can make it one year, two years, three years, four years. But the prime number of divorce is seven years, which means that people's resolve is about seven years long, which kudos to you. But the thing of it is, is that if our foundation is contractual, listen, you married a very cute or very handsome sinner. Which means they're going to break it daily. And so what we do is we say that marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. And here's what a covenant is. It is an agreement to do what I've committed to do regardless of the other party. And here's what you need to understand. Mark chapter 10 and verse 8. Look at this. I'm going to need you to put 9 on there too, Keith. And the two shall become one flesh. Two people become one. Ashley Davenport, Tim Dunn became Tim and Ashley Dunn. 
So they are no longer two but one. What therefore, what does it say? God has joined. I want you to let that sink in. You say, did I marry the right person? Are you married to them? Yep. Yeah, you did. I get this all the time. I'm looking for the one. There is no one. Snow White doesn't exist. She's a cartoon. God, by his grace, allows us to marry whom we choose with his aim always staying in place. And I'll tell you this. You make a foolish decision and very quickly you're going to find out what you value. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to be married. God puts us together under his sovereignty. Now, remember what I said before. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about abuse. But you're in a relationship and you've made a covenant. I made a covenant to my wife and we together made a covenant to God, which, which means this. I said, Ashley Davenport at the time, I promise to love, respect, you know, all the things that we say, you, regardless of whether you do to me or not. And, and you know what? She made the same promise to me, and I've tested that theory in her for 10 years. I have. Are you going to keep your word even when I don't? Because how hard is it to keep your word when somebody is on purpose breaking it? <sighs> it's very difficult. It's very difficult. But look at this. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So I made a promise to her, and listen. I made a promise to God. It breaks my heart when I hear people have functional prenups. Now, you generally don't have enough money to have a real prenup, so here's what you have. You have an unwritten and unspoken expectation that if it's not met, you get to take the things that you really care about, and she gets to take the things that she really cares about, and you just pray that you didn't have kids in the middle. Instead of, my wife and I have a, 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 a sentence or a, a, a statement and you can steal it, because I think we did. Um, our, our thing is, if you leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> took you. Took you a minute there, didn't it? <laughs> what did you say? If you leave me, I'm going with you. Why? Because I made a promise. And not just to you, to God. And you know what? My wife and I, we're, we're both firstborns, and we're both type A's, and we're both right all the time. Ask us. And so my wife and I can get after it. My wife and I have hurt one another and my wife and I have broken promises to one another. But my wife and I, when we got into it, it was until one of us is no longer on earth. And I'll tell you. That that's really been our saving grace in a lot of ways. We literally do not use the D word in our house. Neither of us have ever said it to one another. It's not an option. Why? Because we know that God's aim isn't our happiness and our comfort. It's his glory. It's his glory. And candidly, because I've never seen a good divorce. I've never seen it be redemptive. I've never seen. Now, I've seen people in abuse who needed to leave. I'm not talking about that. But this irreconcilable, contractual, I'm not happy, so I'm out thing. It doesn't work, folks. It doesn't work. And so the umbrella of marriage is covenant. And then two practices, and I know I'm going long. Thanks for bearing with. The first is this, the practice of forgiveness. Asking for it and giving it. The Bible calls this repentance. Guys, if you don't learn anything in your marriage, or if you don't learn anything from today, learn this. These words, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then, spouse, learn this. 
I love you, I do forgive you. (laughs) Because a lot of times those expectations don't get met. We have an interpretation that changes our belief of the quality of that person, and our practice is bitterness. I've been guilty of it many, many, many times. And so learn to forgive. Learn to ask forgiveness quickly. Listen, your pride isn't worth your marriage. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have had that tone. I shouldn't have had that body language. I shouldn't have spent that. I don't know what your thing is. I'm sorry. And then quickly, I forgive you. And that's a tough one. But why do we do that? As God in Christ forgave me. And then lastly, and this one, man, this one's has saved Ash and I as well. It's just faith. And I don't mean faith religion. I mean faith as in the belief of something that we can't see. Do you know that God cares more about your marriage than you do? Do you know that God wants your marriage to be for his glory and for your joy more than you do? And do you know that God says that he's never going to get up on your, give up on your marriage even if you do? You know what, there are going to be times and days and weeks and maybe months where you go through your marriage and you think to yourself, this is irredeemably broken. And I have got to get out of here. And I would say to you that if God is not a part of that equation, you may be right. But because of the God that we serve, nothing is irredeemable. Nothing is irredeemable. Nothing is beyond repair. Nothing is is more broken than God can restore. And so for some of you, the only thing that you need to walk out of here with is the belief or at least the hearing through your ears and hopefully into your soul that God isn't done with your marriage. You might be done with your marriage, but God isn't done with your marriage. And God promises to bring his glory to pass through our lives and bring joy to pass in our lives because that's who he is and what he does. In the institution of marriage, he specifically isolates of specific importance because he wants his hand to be all over your marriage and he promises to never take it off. And so if you're in here today and you're, and you're struggling and you're losing hope, and you can't see a better future, then maybe you need to go home and you need to get with God and you need to say, what do I need to say I'm sorry for? Not go home and figure out an exit plan. Under covenant, go home and say, I was wrong. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? I don't know how to fix it. I just want you to know that I was wrong. And then you need to get together and say, God, we need you to do something today that we haven't been able to get to on our own. We need you to we need you to lead us. We need you to repair this. We're we're handing you a pile of of scraps from our worshiping and our expectations and our interpretation and our beliefs. And we're we're bringing you a pile and we're asking you to rebuild our home. And we're we're doing that in the belief that we don't know how you're going to do that, but that we know that you can. And you got folks all around you who have been married various levels of time gone through various things, and this is why at the beginning I said, taking responsibility for one another. Man, if you know that a couple is struggling, don't, don't give them the, we're praying for you. I mean, pray for them. <laughs> pray for them with them. 
Have them over. Love on them. You're going to make it. God is still here. You're normal. This happens. This is how you got into it. But folks, we need to be a church where marriage, our, our marriages are looking more and more like Jesus. Why? Because they're not in Madison. They're not. And they're not in our country and they're not all over the world, but we serve a better king. Right? We serve a better king who redeems, redeems things that we break for his glory and for our joy. Stand with me. Lots of ways to respond today. Thanks for hanging with me, guys. I know that was long. That's a big topic. Um, I'm going to have the band come up and, and maybe maybe you just need to get with your spouse and you just need to do some singing today. That'd be a great way for you to respond. You can come up. You can take communion in remembrance for what Jesus has done. You can give. You can give out of out of faith and out of blessing and out of the belief that God has given to us. There's boxes by either doors. And you can pray. And, uh, and I, I'm just going to say, I, I'll be in the back left-hand corner, your right, my left. If you're in here today and you need prayer, we'll get the deacons and the elders and, and pray over you. Because sometimes the only place we can take that stuff is God. And the prayer is the way that we do that. So pray with me and uh, we'll do some worshiping. Heavenly Father, uh, thanks, for, thanks for this group. Thanks for having them hang with today. I hope that... Your Holy Spirit is able to use what was said. Um, God, marriage is one of those things that it's very exposing and it can be very painful. And we've got lots of hurts and lots of wounds around this. And so I just pray, if nothing else, that you help us walk out of here in hope. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in our ability to make good decisions and, and muscle this out. Hope in you. That you instituted marriage, that you created it for your glory, and that you can redeem and renew and restore the things that, that we've broken. God, would you do that? Would you strengthen healthy marriages and would you repair broken ones? And as we worship you, God, would your Holy Spirit be empowering and renewing and bringing us under your mighty hand for your fantastic glory and for our permanent joy. And we thank you for all of that. In the good name of Jesus, amen.